Well, good. I do want to put a plug in for you to go to the Oriental Institute. It really is a fine museum. They do have a, a handicapped accessible ramp, uh, so don't worry about that. There's plenty of, uh, well, there's not plenty. There's some benches in some of the galleries, so if you need to stop and, and sit down for a little bit, uh, there's uh, those kind of facilities there. It's not that large of a museum in terms of the walking, so it's not like the Field Museum where you feel like you're walking a quarter mile just to get into the front gate. Uh, once you're inside the museum, it's probably, I would say, the building is maybe a little bit larger than the Fellowship Hall uh, overall. So it's not like you're having to walk a ton uh, to be able to enjoy the galleries there. And uh, it's a great place. There's galleries for Egypt, galleries for Persia, galleries for Mesopotamia, galleries for the area of Hittites and the Asia Minor. And so it's just a wonderful place to be able to survey uh, the lands of the Old Testament. So I would... Uh, Highly encourage you to, to go. I uh, point out a lot from the book of Genesis uh, while looking at artifacts and objects there. So we'll have a grand time, and I hope that you're able to join us with, for that tour. All right, class. I want to see how you did on your homework. Last week, we talked about how things are deja vu, that is, they're parallel how certain events and certain people have similarities with other events that come. And I ask you to look into Noah and Lot to see the comparisons between Noah and Lot. Ordinarily, we wouldn't put the two in the same boat. Pun, no pun intended. Uh, but there are a number of similarities. So I was curious about which ones you observed. So we'll open the floor up. We have some roving microphones. So please, before you speak, make sure that a microphone is nearby. Uh, Stephen and Dick will do a good job. So I think we have, who had their hand up? All right, Bobby's got her hand up. Okay, I did similarities and, and a couple of differences. All right. The, the similarities are they were both righteous. They were both righteous. Uh, they both lived among wicked people. They both lived among wicked people. Uh, Noah was warned by God to build a safe place, the ark, mm -hmm. and Lot was allowed to run to a safe place, the right. town. All right. Um, they both got drunk. They both got drunk. Oh, boy. <clears throat> the only ones to get drunk in the book of Genesis that we um, know of. They were both dishonored by their offspring. They were both dishonored by their offspring. Good catch. Um, the, of course, Noah was his son and Lot was his daughters. Right. Um, and in Noah, everything perished and, and Lot, the, the little whole local area. The whole perished. local area around Sodom and Gomorrah. The other thing I found interesting was the differences. Um, in, in Noah, the whole world, as they knew it, was right. uh, perished. Uh, in Lot, just the local population. Um, uh, and in Noah's case, a whole new civilization of humankind began. Right. In Lot, it was just Moab and Ammon. Right. And uh, in Noah, it rained water. In Lot, it rained burning sulfur. It rained down burning sulfur, yeah. In Noah, the sons and wives were saved. Mm -hmm. um, and in Lot, the daughters were saved, and the sons-in-law had a chance, but they right. refused. They lost out, right. And in Noah, the wife survived, and in Lot, the wife became a pillar of salt. She did a lot of work on that. Let's give her a hand. Wow. Anybody else make any observations? There are some others. She missed some. She didn't get them all. All right, we have uh, back there. Both were asked to leave the place where they were at, at least they perish. Right. They were both asked to leave, and uh, yeah, all right. Any other observations between Noah and Lot? Uh, what, can you repeat again? Uh, ha have him repeat what he said again, Dick? Both Lot and Noah were asked to leave by God. At least they perish, leaves the place where they were at. Right. Any other? Yes, we have one over here. Wait from the microphone here. Uh, the only other thing I saw was that um, in the notes I wrote down, the Lord was grieved by the sinful men. 
yes. in both with where Lot lived and also where Noah lived. The Lord was sorry he made men and it grieved him. Right. There was a crying out, uh, again, that was making its way up to him and it grieved him that there was so much wickedness in the earth and in Sodom. Any other comparisons between Noah and Lot? All right, we have one over here. Wait, wait for the microphone. Right there. Uh, Noah was a leader, and Lot was very much a follower. (laughs) Good contrast. Definitely good contrast between them. All right, many uh, were already observed. Of course, there's many that could be said. We already made mention of the fact both are righteous. And this is a very intriguing uh, element that Peter picks up on in the New Testament when he calls him righteous Lot. And honestly, if we look at what Lot does, it's hard to characterize uh, what he does as righteous. But one of the things that is a great character trait that Lot does exhibit, even though it's not as uh, robust as it could be, is the area of hospitality. And even as twisted as it was in offering his own daughters to the men of Sodom, uh, still though there was the idea that when somebody came under your roof, that was something that you needed to protect and value. And so hospitality is about the only trait uh, that we can really see in a positive nature. Uh, But Peter picks up on righteous Lot of course, that's what Abraham is then negotiating with God. Is there 50 righteous? Will you, dis, you know, destroy the city? Gets all the way down to 10. But the assumption is on Abraham's part is that Lot is righteous. And uh, so that's uh, part of that whole thing. We also have both have families saved. Again, a very easy one to observe. Uh, I like the way that Bobby said it, the way I say it. Uh, but she, you said dishonored uh, by family members. Well, there was in both situations, uh, uh, Noah with whatever happened with Ham and Canaan, uh, and then also uh, with Lot with his own daughters. And so there is the, at least the air of some type of deviance uh, that was taking place during that time. Uh, the other one is, this is one that I don't think anybody caught, they were both rescued by two. Uh, Noah, in a sense, was rescued from his nakedness by having Shem and Japheth walk backwards with the garment and cover him up. And then, of course, it was the two angels, the two messengers that came and rescued Lot from Sodom. So, again, all these kind of connections there. So you did a great job. You should be commended for doing your homework. And I'll give you another homework assignment at the end of uh, our class time today. Again, uh, this is uh, the other thing there. Today is going to be kind of a hodgepodge. I'm calling it literary trimmings. You know, like at Christmas time, you bring out all the trimmings. And, you know, you have the tree and the lights and all the other decorations. My wife has a couple of Rubbermaid tubs up in her attic, and we have to get them down every year and put them out. Trimmings that just kind of enhance the, the mood, the, the spirit. And so I want to just talk about a number of what I call literary trimmings, uh, Little devices, they're not the main part of the story, but they certainly enhance the telling of the story. So we're going to put on some literary glasses and look at these texts in some new ways. So it's kind of a smorgasbord. What I'm going to talk about is motif of color. And I'll explain what I mean by that, how color can enhance our understanding of the story. Also, participant reference. It's kind of a big term, but this is a a device I'm just having an absolute ball with as I'm looking at text, and I hope you will as well, because that's where our homework is going to be. Participant reference, and I'll explain what that is, how characters are labeled. Then the two are kind of related, type scenes. That is where something seems to happen of a similar nature at a scene in the story, and it repeats itself over and over again. And I'll explain type scene. Type scene, for instance, uh, we have stock plot lines, uh, hero on a journey. That's a very common plot line where you have the hero leave his home and he goes on a journey like Lord of the Rings, uh, that kind of, that's a similar plot line. But then we also have a stranger comes to town when uh, that's another plot line. And there seems to be kind of similar elements to those kind of plot lines, especially in terms of the scene. And we'll talk about that. 
And then props. This is a, a rather fun one. Uh, and I'll talk about objects that are associated with each of the patriarchs that are unique. And uh, we'll see if you can capture some of those. So let's take a look at colors. When you think about color in the book of Genesis, what's probably the first thing that comes to mind that's of a colorful object? There's a couple of them. But what are some things that come to mind when you think about colors in the book of Genesis? Joseph and his multi-technicolor coat. What's another thing with color in the book of Genesis? Bertie? The rainbow. The rainbow. Again, it doesn't accentuate that. It just says, I have put my bow in the clouds. But we know, though, that the rainbow is a multicolored kind of object. Those two are the others. Are there any other colors? Okay, the, the fig leaf, the, the, the green leaves, the twigs that the, that the doves bring back. Uh, we have that color uh, kind of associated. Bobby's got her. She's got a... Creation where um, they talked about the green plants being... Yeah, every green plant that uh, brings seed according to its kind. So there is the color green. And certainly we would associate green with vegetation and growth and... and, uh, and, and I think of the burning bush, red. All right, but that's, sorry, that's in the book of Exodus. Oh, sorry. Good it's thinking, in the Bible. though. Good thinking. All right, Bertie's got another one. Blue for the sky. Blue for the sky. Where is that mentioned? In the expanse above. Okay, the expanse. I don't know if the blue is mentioned as much. I know in other books, but certainly we know the sky is blue and that there is a separation between the waters below and the waters above. But the Technicolor coat, I think, certainly grabs everybody. There's a whole, what, play or drama, uh, Joseph and his Technicolor coat, and uh, certainly children in Sunday school and children's church and VBS love to get out all those colors of the crayon box to be able to uh, fill out Joseph's multicolored coat. But I want to look at colors in a character that perhaps you've not observed before. And I want to talk about colors in the life of Jacob. All right. Now, here's the beginning. Remember we talked first week about first impressions. When we're first introduced to Jacob and Esau, we have some first impressions about Esau. Esau is what? What's the characteristics of Esau physically? Red and hairy. And what is he known to do? He's a hunt. He's a hunter. He likes to hunt. He likes to kill game. So he's red and hairy, and he likes to hunt game. Now, people just kind of roll right over. Okay, thanks for that piece of information. Let's get on to the action. But why is that piece of information shared? Well, that helps us to understand some things that will be developed later on. Esau is associated with the color red. He founds the nation Edom, which means red. So he is associated with the country of Edom, and that means red. But here's the other, other kind of twist. He's hairy. Well, you won't really know this unless you know uh, the Hebrew behind it, but a landmark in Edom is Seir, Mount Seir, S-E-I-R. Well, that means hair in Hebrew. So the Mount Harry in Redland is really what Edom means. And so clearly there is a connection with red with Esau. But I want you to now track what happens with Jacob. What does Jacob do? When Esau comes back from a hunting expedition, he's famished. He comes up to Jacob, who is making lunch, and he asks him, let me some of that red stew. Really, if you look at it in the original, it's red, red, give me. He is portrayed as hairy. What does that mean? He looks like a, if he's red and hairy, what does he look like? He looks like an animal. He talks, grunts like an animal. What is an animal mainly concerned about? Stephen, uh, you sell blue buffalo or you help blue buffalo. What do, what do animals mainly need? Meat, food. What does, what does Esau want? Red, red, ooh, ooh, me want. It's kind of, it's really almost brutish. But that's reflective of his character. He is very brutish. He is effective hunter. 
How many, I don't, I'm not a really a hunter. I don't really, I've never really hunted much. Any of you hunters? Nobody wants admitted in this uh, culture. <laughs> what makes an effective hunter? What does a hunter do? He goes out and he buys certain types of clothing. What does he buy? Camouflage. Why does he buy camouflage? He doesn't want to be seen by the animals. Well, guess what? Esau's got built-in camouflage. He's hairy. He looks like an animal. So when he goes out and he hunts, the animals aren't scared of him because he looks just like them. And remember, his hair is not just, you know, extra long hair. He's hairy all over his body, just like I have this, this poor guy up here. I don't know what the condition is. But he's got hair all over his body, so much so that when they try to trick Dad, what do they do? They put goat skin on Jacob's neck and arms so that when Dad feels him and feels the goat skin, he says, oh, that's my son. So it's not like he's got extra hair, like, you know, some uh, Italians, my father-in-law has some, uh, some extra hair on his back. But we're not talking about just extra hair. We're talking about furry hair. That's Esau. He's portrayed as a brutish animal. But he's red. He's a red animal. Now, when he comes up to Jacob, he says, give me some of that red red. From the red, the red. Please, give me. Grunt. That's Esau. Now, what's going on? Well, remember, too, here's a little bit of twist. Jacob is known as what? A manipulator, a deceiver, a conniver, a, you know, you name it. Esau is a hunter. But let me ask, who's hunting whom now? And what is Jacob doing? Jacob is cooking a bowl of red stew. Right? So what is he doing? This is, in effect, a trap. Jacob is the one hunting his animal-like brother. So what does he do? He puts out a bowl of red stew in front of him to entrap him. So that's why when he comes back, famished, Esau, he says, give me some of that red stuff. I'm famished. I'm hungry. All right? So now, Jacob then is able to use this hunger on Esau's part to buy the birthright. And once again, we see how unconcerned Esau is regarding his family heritage. How he's so willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of pottage. For a red stew. For a meal, he sells his birthright. Again, Esau is not being uh, demonstrated and characterized in a very positive light. But Jacob is the one manipulating the situation, and he does so with red. And again, we talked about uh, Esau being Mr. Red. And you say, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. But we have another incident where Jacob uses colors. Let's go fast forward to the color white. A few years later, Jacob interacts with his uncle Laban. This is where it gets really interesting. Laban's name is derived from the Hebrew word, which means white. Laban is the word in Hebrew for white. It might even be that Laban might have been an albino. We don't know for sure, but whatever, he is white. Now, my dad was called Whitey when he was growing up because he had white hair. And so maybe he just had white hair. Uh, and so, you know, coming out, he might have had that out of the womb. And so they called him Laban. They called him White. But it's interesting that we have another character who's associated with a color. Esau is red. Laban is white. And so Miss Laban is, in a sense, Mr. White. And so the Hebrew word Laban is translated as, uh, I mean, Laban is Laban. Now, in Genesis 30, we have a very unusual account. And commentators and scholars don't know what to, to do with it. And this is that speckled and spotted goat genetic incident. Remember your story, what happens? They drive a bargain, Jacob and, and Laban, about whose goats are going to be whose. And so all the 
the unspotted and speckled ones will be Laban's, and all of the speckled and spotted ones will be Jacob's, knowing that most of the goats would be not speckled and spotted, and most of those would then be Laban. But then Jacob does something very unusual, and it works. What does he do? He takes fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. Notice the repetition of the word white. Again, it's the, the word for poplar is actually, in the original, libne. You see the same letters, LBN, Laban, Libne, literally the poplar tree is the white tree. So he takes the white tree and he peels uh, to reveal the white underneath. So he's using the color white in this situation to try to manipulate the genetics, the uh, sexual reproduction of goats to trick his uncle Laban. So again, what we have here is white is mentioned three times in one verse. So what's going on? Jacob is using white magic on Mr. White, just like he used red magic, the red stew, on Mr. Red. They say, wow, why is that in the text? Well, what is Jacob characterized as? He is a master deceiver, a master manipulator, a master con man. And here we see in front of us how he thinks. He thinks that if he can just use something of a similar color to the man, red with Esau, white with Laban, he can, in a sense, voodoo the situation for his advantage. And it works. He gets the birthright, and he gets more speckled and spotted goats. And you say, why did God allow this voodoo kind of manipulation with colors that Jacob would have with his his relatives, with his brother and with his uncle? Well, I think what we're seeing is, remember, this is before he is transformed at that Jabbok River scene. So we're seeing him in his true colors. We're seeing him deceive his relatives right before our very eyes. And why he is able to think he can pull it off is because of colors. Red with his red brother, white with his white uncle. And how the story uses the colors to give us a little clue. Again, it's not the main part. We already know Jacob is a heel grabber, a deceiver. But we get to see that and how he uses these colors to manipulate his surroundings. So again, that's uh, just a little wow factor in terms of how the stories are told. And once again, we see how artfully and aesthetically pleasing the way that these accounts in the book of Genesis are given to us. So you get it? Is that any questions about what's going on here? Yeah. Just, uh, uh, was his mother behind all this? Was this <laughs> something that was, came out in the womb or was his mother actually... Uh, behind him, encouraging him to do this. I think, uh, you know, we say a chip off the old block. I think like, instead of like father, like son, it's like mother, like, like son. Uh, Rebecca is a deceiver as well. Uh, remember, she sat on the idols and deceived Laban. Uh, and so, no, that was uh, actually Rachel. Uh, but uh, Rebecca is the one that puts the plan in action to deceive Isaac with the, the, the blessing scene uh, with that. Uh, So I think, uh, and that's why Jacob seems to want no part of this deception plan. And what does, what makes him go forward with it is his mother's own words. When his mom says, let the curse fall on me, my son, if we are discovered. Now here's where it gets a little interesting. I didn't mean to go here, but again, how these stories are artfully told. We never hear from Rebecca. Uh, We don't hear of her death. So it's almost as if when she says, let the curse fall on me, my son. Remember, she's the one who instigated deceiving her husband, Isaac, with the whole goat skin and and getting the blessing scene. So she's the one who set Jacob up for this. We don't hear from Jacob, I mean from Rebecca, uh, in terms of where she dies. Because we know where Sarah dies. We know where Rachel dies. We don't know where Rebecca dies. But there is a little account later on in the book of Genesis where it talks about Deborah 
Rebecca's nurse dying and they bury her near a tree. And it's an odd kind of piece of information to share. Why would you be more concerned about Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, rather than Rebecca's burial spot? Well, I think it's once again a little tip is how we are to process Rebecca. Rebecca is just as guilty as Jacob. And so when she says, perhaps idly, let the curse fall on me, my son, I think what we actually see is the curse falling on her, is that we don't hear of her death except, albeit backdoor, through the death of her nurse, Rebecca, rather than hers. And so, again, it's a small little rabbit trail on that, but again, another example of how these stories are told. So we see Jacob very, very superstitious. Remember, he's not the the right kind of man yet. Just like Abraham is not the right kind of man when we're introduced to him. He has some positive traits, but he also has some very negative traits. And the very negative trait of Jacob here is that he's very superstitious, very manipulative, and he thinks he can control his surroundings by manipulation, especially this voodoo of colors, so to speak. All right, let's talk a little bit about participant reference. Participant reference is just simply how are people labeled. So, for instance, uh, I am Jim, I'm James, I'm Dr. Coakley, I'm Mr. Coakley, I am Professor, I am Jimbo, I am husband, I am brother, I am uncle, and thankfully I am grandpa. All of those are labels for me, right? They're all true. Each one of those labels gives you a little snapshot of how I want to be seen. Professor, that's my job. Uncle, brother, husband, grandpa, that's how I am among my family. I am Jimbo to some of my friends, you know, a little uh, inside name. Now, if you call me Jimbo, it's not appropriate. You see, you see what I mean? So how characters are labeled in the text is something that we should monitor. Because I, I have all of those relationships. I have all of those titles and more. And the characters within the story have titles and names. And so what we're getting at is a very important hermeneutical principle, which is choice implies meaning. So when authors have choices, we need to look at what choice did they make. Because they can refer to a character by name or by a pronoun, he or she, or as part of a group, they. Or we can uh, give their genetic background. Hagar, the Egyptian. Ruth, the Moabitess. Now, the problem is most of us, we're not tracking to that level. We're just looking at, oh, I know who that is. I can picture it. Let's move on. But we as readers need to have our antenna up. How did the author refer to that character? What titles, what names did they use? Did they use the proper name or did they use pronouns? In Genesis 1, we hear about Elohim or God 35 times. Only once is he referred to, the deity, by a pronoun, he. Only once. So we clearly are introduced to Elohim over and over again 35 times. So the proper name, God, is used. Instead of, and God created the heavens and the earth, and he, and he, and he, and he, and he, it's Elohim he did. Elohim spoke. Elohim divided. Elohim blessed. So it will almost be like over the top. You know, Karen introduced our lecture this morning. Karen talked about announcements. Karen... You see what I'm doing? I'm using Karen's name over and over again when I don't need to. And so I'm emphasizing her name. So one of the things we can do a tip is how are characters labeled as you read them in the text? So we call this semantics versus pragmatics. So for instance, if I use the expression, your child, I'm talking about A child that's not my own, right? So if I say, your child's picture looks very, very, uh, you know, uh, attractive. 
Your child is very bright. Your child is very gifted. So I'm not referring to my children. I'm referring to somebody else's children. Now, if when my children were young, my wife wanted to go out and do some shopping and leave me at home with the two kids. So she goes out, spends a couple hours at the store. She comes back, and she says, how did it go with you taking care of the kids? And I say, well, your children behave like this. (laughs) I'm using your children in a different kind of way, right? I'm saying it's your fault for their behavior. It's not my children, even though it is. So your children is letting the audience know how I'm not really happy right now. And so I'm passing the buck that it's not my fault as their behavior patterns. So this is something very subtle. So what I want to do very quickly is show you a character in the book of Genesis by the name of Ishmael. So I have it up here on the screen. Don't worry about all the things, but just look at the green and the yellow. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Very typical birth announcement. Notice he's given the name Ishmael, and then his character is described. But then Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So no problem in using Ishmael's name. So Ishmael is the offspring of Abraham and Hagar. That's chapter 16. Next chapter, chapter 17, same thing. Four times Ishmael is mentioned by name. So, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Abraham took Ishmael and all of his servants. And Ishmael, his son, was 13. Actually, there's, there, yeah, there's, no, there's five here. Uh, and the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son. So you can see here, the author Moses has no problem in using Ishmael by name. But we fast forward a couple chapters to chapter 21, and this is where it gets rather interesting. Here's verses 9 to 15. In yellow are all the labels for Ishmael. He is called son, son of this maid, lad, son of the maid, he, boy, boy. That's the first uh, six verses here. Chapter 21, 16 to 21. She went down and sat down opposite him. Don't let, let me see the boy die. Opposite him, lad, 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 him, him, lad, lad, he, he, him, him. What's going on here? Who is not mentioned? Ishmael by name. So it's interesting. Even the beginning of this new account, we, never, we know exactly who we're talking about. We know it's Ishmael. But he's never given that proper name. He is never called Ishmael in chapter 21. He's just called lad or boy or him or son of this maid. He is not given the dignity of his own name. Now, why is that? What's happening in this part of Genesis? We have Isaac coming onto the scene. Isaac is the child of promise. He is the focal point of Abraham and Sarah and even God because God does not refer to Ishmael by name here. It almost seems kind of cruel to not give the character the dignity of using their own name but just using all other titles but not their personal name. What's happening here? What's happening here is we're seeing literally what's happening on the actual ground. Ishmael is exiting stage right. So we are marginalizing, minimizing him by not using his name. We all know who we're talking about here, but we don't use his name. Certainly, Moses used his name earlier in the earlier accounts about him, but not here, deliberately. I mean, you can see all the occurrences. It's almost like they're, they're trying hard not to use his name. So that's a subtle example of participant reference. Now, uh, we'll give you a homework assignment with participant reference, and we'll review this next week. But I want you to 
keep in mind in that now, when you read through texts, what are the labels that the author gives to that character? Bobby's got a question. That brings up one of the problems I have. Why is it that they um, do not capitalize the pronoun for God? Because there are times when it would clear up some mystery. Right, right. The big thing with uh, the question is, why is it that some Bibles uh, use capital letters for pronouns he or him when it refers to, or you when it refers to God? Uh, uh, Many Bible versions have had that in the past, and it's kind of one of these new language developments where Bible is not capitalized, you know, when you refer to the Bible, or pronouns for God are not capitalized. It just seems to be more literary convention. I don't always read into it that it's a, you know, a diminishing of God. It's just that they're trying to be consistent with literary uh, conventions as to how they do that. But you're right. One of the biggest issues we have as readers is disambiguating. I love that word. Disambiguating pronouns. We have a, a we need a microphone over here, Stephen. He's looking up text. It's good. He's a reader. He's always reading. Doesn't this also have some further significance? Isn't uh, this where Ishmael is falling out of favor? And yes. isn't he in the line of, of Muhammad? Right. It, That's the whole thing. We're seeing him kind of moving off the scene, and so we don't elevate him because we're elevating Isaac. Th- this is the split between the forthcoming Christianity and the Muslim faith, I think. Yeah, I mean, certainly we know that there's, there's tension going on here. Uh, between what's going on. Let me see if I can bring up quickly another uh, development. Uh, go to desktop. And I'll show you uh, another example of participant reference. This is the relationship between Sarai and Hagar. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, born him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid. You see here, Hagar is a number of things. But the stress point here is what? She's an Egyptian, she's a foreigner, and she's a servant. Just like I'm Dr. Coakley in a more honored title, but Jimbo in a more personal notice. So Hagar is an Egyptian maid. That's her status. And we want to make sure that Sarah understands her place. So it's interesting. I, I've colored, and this is what I do. And this is what I do in my spare time. I, uh, <laughs> blue is the narrator, Moses. Pink is when Sarah speaks. Purple is when God speaks. And green is when Abram speaks. But once again, when you notice what's going on here, is the narrator calls her Egyptian maid, Hagar. Hagar, the Egyptian. Why mention that? We already know she's Egyptian. So what what are we doing? We're making sure that you see her foreignness. Same in the book of Ruth. Why in the middle of the book are we hearing about Ruth the Moabitess? We already know she's from Moab. It's because we want to show culturally there's distance between Ruth and the other characters in the story. Notice, pink is Sarah. How does Sarah refer to Hagar? My maid, her, my maid, her, she. What does Sarah never do? Sarah never calls her by name. We have a uh, question here. So this gives us insight. How is Sarah viewing Hagar? Not very positively, right? She never refers to her by name. Why is it okay for, if if Sarah wasn't conceiving, for Abraham just to go... To her maid. Right. I mean, that is not his wife. Right. So why was it in Bible times okay to do that? Well, certainly the question is, why is it that Abraham went into Hagar when she wasn't his wife? Uh, there is customs that we know of from ancient documents. Uh, Nuzi is a, uh, a archaeological library that was found there, and they found that this was a relatively normal custom. It was the wife's responsibility to bear offspring. And so if she was infertile, she had to find a surrogate to raise offspring for her husband. And so it seems as though Abraham is just following cultural mores and customs of that time. 
So even though I don't think God is pleased with that, because certainly God did not intend for this to happen with Hagar, it was always Sarah, but I think Abraham is just doing what we've often seen in his life, just doing what is expedient, what will work, rather than what's by faith. He does operate on faith at times, but at times he also operates out of expedience. So the point I just want to make is, is that Sarah never refers to Hagar by name. And so when we read through these stories, we read these accounts, we, just, we kind of picture, okay, I got Abraham, Sarah, Hagar. You got the picture, but you're not tracking what are the titles that each other is giving one another within the text. This will really enhance your, your study of God's word when you read narrative texts. And it, it'll make you uh, read the text with a little bit more uh, curiosity, which is always a good thing. So let's go back uh, to looking. So I'll give you some homework that you can work on to develop your ability to kind of track participants uh, as we go through. Now I want to talk about type scenes and props. Type scenes are stock scenes that get repeated over and over again to have similar elements. We kind of did the same with parallelism between like Noah and Lot, between Adam and Noah, and so on and so forth. But these are scenes, not people. So we do this all the time in film, in movies. The old classic standard Western movie. Every Western movie has similar stock items, right? It's got the dusty, dirty Main Street of town. It's got a saloon. It's got a hotel. And the saloon has swinging doors and a bar. And inevitably, what happens inside that bar, there's always hand, you know, hand-to-hand combat fists or guns showing off. I mean, there's, again, in the older ones, you could tell in black and white, the good guys wore white hats, the bad guys wore black hats. That's what we mean by a type scene. You just expect, and, you know, that's why it's hard now, like modern Westerns don't seem to follow those conventions, and it's kind of hard to track them as Westerns anymore. But it's because they're going off track in terms of the type scene. So, type scene. We have a type scene in the Bible. It is wells. Wells. So, wells are where betrothals happen. Wells is the harmony.com place of the Old Testament. Christianmingle.com is wells. The singles bar, the bar scene, is the wells. That's where men found their mates, was at the local well, the local drinking establishment. So now, we have Genesis 24, where Isaac and Rebekah, actually it's the servant of Abraham, getting a bride for his uh, master's son, uh, Isaac. Well, we have Jacob and Rachel. We are fast-forwarding to Exodus. We have Moses and Zipporah. And then we have, in the New Testament, Jesus with the Samaritan woman. So we have four scenes that happen at a well where the issue of marriage comes up. We have a man in a foreign land, Isaac, actually the servant. We have Jacob, Moses, and Jesus in Samaria. We have arriving at a well where a future bride is meant. Now, certainly I'm not implying that Jesus married the Samaritan woman, all right? But there is a tapping into that theme that was used in the Old Testament for thematic reasons. Assistance is asked for, given for. Hey, can you help me water my... my Can you give me something to drink? Can you water my camels? Word is taken back to the village. We have others come out to meet the individual at the well. He is invited to stay. He stays, and then a marriage ensues. Now, that's why I have Jesus and the Samaritan woman. He doesn't marry her, but the topic of marriage, uh, you know, bring your husband. I don't have a husband. No, yeah, you're right. You have five husbands. And uh, so the issue of her marital status is coming up in the conversation. So notice, wells have similar stock things that go on. There's a man coming in from a foreign country. Uh, He meets the person at the well. Uh, Water or assistance is given. 
Uh, it's almost like we have the same type of events happening every time you come across a well. So that's what we mean by type scene. Not a major part. It's just that whenever you see somebody belly up to the well in the Old Testament, you're thinking maybe this is going to be an engagement. That there's going to be a couple being formed here. There's an interesting twist on this when you get to King Saul. King Saul meets some women by a well, but he doesn't marry them. I think it shows that he breaks the type scene. We expect him to find a wife at the well, just like the other great leaders of Israel's past have. But Saul, just like he does everything else, messes up, and he doesn't get a mate like everybody else does. And so Saul is seen as a very tragic character, literarily. And one of the things is he doesn't measure up to the type scene. So again, it's just a small little example of what happens. So that's a type scene. So the character journeys to the outside world to meet a bride at a well. Water is drawn. Wedding. So wells, water, weddings. Type scene. Again, not the major storyline of Genesis, but it's a way that we can connect and tie these stories together. So once again, it's very similar to parallelism that we looked at last week, but it's now based on a scene. We have another type scene in the New Testament. How about storms on a lake? We have a number of incidences where the disciples and Jesus are encountering storms on a lake. So that's, again, an example of a type scene in the New Testament. So we have some of these all the way through. Now, this is where I want to wrap up with props. And this is where it gets a little intriguing. Every one of the patriarchs has a prop associated with them. What do I mean by a prop? Something that the text mentions repeatedly in their lives that is not foregrounded in the other patriarchs' lives. So put on your thinking caps. What would be an object with either Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph that is repeatedly a part of the narrative regarding their life? How about Abraham? Any idea? What's a repeatable item that we see Abraham engaging or encountering through his life? We don't normally think like this. But anybody have a guess? I'd be surprised if you get it. But once you see it, you'll, you'll say, oh, yeah, I wondered about that. Flocks. Flocks. Uh, he does say he's, but most of these people deal with animals. So it's not exclusive to Abraham where they're dealing with animals, goats, sheep, uh, etc. There was a hand back here. All right, the question is, is a staff or a rod? With who? With Abraham. It's not something I don't think that's repeated over and over again. Uh, it is something that's mentioned. Uh, it is mentioned with Judah, his, his staff. And so it's, it's mentioned with, uh, with some of the other characters. How about Isaac? Kind of similar to what we just talked about with type scenes. What's an object that's associated with Isaac? Kind of a hard character to track because he's not ever really given front stage for very long. He's always in the shadow of his father, Abraham, or he's always then in the shadow of his son, Jacob. Very, uh, he's, I think just one chapter, chapter 26, is where he's kind of independent. Anything with Isaac? How about Jacob? What's something that Jacob encounters and deals with time and time again? What, what was that? Sneak, well, he's sneaky, but I'm talking about an object, something tangible, a physical object. How about Joseph? Coats, clothes, good. All right. So we'll, we'll get to that one. That one is probably the easiest for us to, to observe because we, we talked about that already, multicolored coat and things like that. But we'll come back and visit that. So here's the objects. It's trees and altars with Abraham. It is wells, going back to the type scene, with Isaac. It is stones with Jacob, and it's clothes or garments with Joseph. So let's track that briefly with each of these. What's going on with Abraham? Here we have Abram, and he travels as far as the Oaks of Moreh. Oaks, the trees of Moreh, and that's near Shechem. Then he goes to the Oaks of Mamre, Genesis 13, that's near Hebron. Then we have the situation where Isaac and him go on a journey. 
And Isaac carries up wood up Mount Moriah. Then we have him, after Sarah dies, buying a cave at Machpelah. And this cave includes the field and the trees. So why is it that we hear about all these trees in Abraham's life? Do you hear about trees in Joseph's life? It's an object that is closely associated. It's a prop in Abraham's life. Now, I'm not sure myself, actually, what all this means. Especially, it gets even more eerie when you look at the association with the letter M. More, Mamre, Moriah, Machpelah. All of these place names with the letter M, all associated with wood or trees. So there's a prop in Abraham's life with that. One of these things is, in the ancient culture, one of the things that ancient pagans often did is worship at tree groves. They would have sacred forests and sacred tree stands. And so it could be that Abraham, when he's now making his way into the, the land of Canaan, he's building altars at most of these places. He could be establishing a beachhead, as it were, in the front of these pagan worship centers. That may be one uh, cultural background. Again, we're kind of lost to all the uh, cultural things that they understood when they were reading these texts originally. Uh, So we're just trying to do the best we can with uh, archaeology and history and culture, trying to understand that. But trees are a uniting object in the life of Abraham. Also altars, but that also shows us that he's a man of worship. Now, what about Isaac? Like I said, we don't know much about him. But the only thing we see him doing independently is digging wells. He digs wells and there's contention. He digs another well, there's more contention. He digs another well, there's further contention. Finally, he digs a well and he leaves him alone. That's basically the summary of Isaac. Why is it that we're concerned about wells? Water. What's water? Water is life, but also water is a... (laughs) Power, but it also is a, uh, the idea of land rights, water rights. Isaac is closely associated with land. Isaac never leaves. Remember, Abraham, in a time of trouble, goes and skedaddles down to Egypt. He goes and rescues Lot at Damascus. But Isaac never leaves the land. He is the child of promise, and he doesn't go and get a bride for himself. Abraham sends a servant back home to get a bride. Isaac is closely associated with the land, and one of the things that closely associates you with land is water. Isaac is also seen to have uh, agriculture, and he, his crops increase, what, 100-fold. What does that show? The connection is Isaac is connected with land, and one of the things that closely connects you with land is wells. So I think that's an object that is closely associated with Isaac. Then we have Jacob with stones. He puts a stone under his head as a pillow at Bethel. Kind of a strange pillow. But he sleeps on stones. After his latter vision, he sets up his pillow rock as a commemorative marker. So he's, he, presumably it was lying down on the ground. He stands it erect. And so that way then it's now a memorial stone. He rolls away the stone from the well when he meets Rachel. Remember, uh, they have certain time of the day when they water their flocks. But Jacob gets right in there. How old is Jacob when he's moving the stone from the mouth of the well? This is intriguing. Most people think of Jacob as this virile, young, eligible bachelor. Like 25, 30, you know, handsome. You know how old he is? When he finally meets his bride? 77 years of age. You know how old he is when he wrestles at the Jabbok River? 99. He is strong. We picture Esau as the kind of the, the macho man. Uh-uh. Jacob can move stones at 77. He can wrestle all night long at 99. This guy is strong. But he's associated with stones. And so... When he finally is going back home, you know, remember the story, Laban is chasing him, finally catches up with Jacob and family, and what do they do? They build this heap of stones again. We call it Mizpah, 
where, hey, this is a mutual non-aggression pact. I won't cross over the line to go after you, and you won't cross over this border to come after me. Here's the heap of stones as a memorial for that. So, what's happening? He then sets up another pillar of stone at Bethel after God speaks to him again. Why is stones repeated? Do we hear about stones in Joseph's life? No. Why do we repeatedly encounter stones in Jacob's life? What kind of life does Jacob lead? We call it a hard one. In fact, that's what Jacob himself says to Pharaoh when he's blessing Pharaoh. He says, the days of my life have been long and hard. Can't get much harder than rock. Jacob is always pushing against the rock. He sleeps on them, he wrestles, uh, he moves them, he, in a sense, probably wrestles on them, even though it's not mentioned on the Jabak River on the bank. I'm sure there are stones that are a part of this wrestling scene. Jacob is associated with rocks. He's lived a hard life, and a hard object like a rock is a good object to remind us of the type of life that he lives. It's his own choice, but he's lived a hard life, and so stones are a beautiful prop to associate with Jacob. And then lastly, we have Joseph. Every time Joseph changes his clothes, he changes his status. He's given the coat of honor by his dad. His brothers hate him. What do the brothers do? Strip it off him. He's now a slave. He's now given the garment of a slave by Potiphar. What happens with Potiphar's wife? She strips it from him. And she uses it as evidence against him, just like the brothers use it as evidence against him as well, to prove that supposedly that he died. Then he's thrown into jail. What happens? He's given prisoner's clothes. What happens? The Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. Oh, yeah, there is this guy who knows dreams. Bring him before the Pharaoh to interpret the dreams. They put on new clothes. He then becomes second in command of all of Egypt. So just like we change clothes for different settings, put on a suit for a formal event, you put on jeans and T-shirt for working outside, you know, you wear different clothes for different things, it's transitioning you in terms of your status or what you're doing. Joseph's clothes, most of the time, are forcibly changed on him. So we see the transition status in Joseph using clothes. So Abraham and trees, Isaac and wells, Jacob and stones, Joseph and clothes. Why don't we read about Abraham's clothes? Why don't we read about Isaac's clothes? Because each of these patriarchs has something that is closely associated with them so that you, the reader, can kind of have some type of object lesson about their life. Again, another beautiful little wow factor with how the book of Genesis is given to us. Now I want to give you some homework. Uh... How is Sarah labeled in Genesis 12? I want you to look at how Sarah is labeled in Genesis 12. And then, we've talked a little bit about him. I want you to track how is Laban. You have to do a little bit of research because Laban happens over several chapters. I want you to analyze how is Laban labeled. We already talked about him being white. But what other labels does Laban have? And then another object that I want you to track. How are goats used within the book of Genesis? So what is the commonality of goats appearing in the book of Genesis? What is happening whenever you see a goat being mentioned? So that's your homework. I want you to track Sarah in Genesis 12. I want you to look at Laban Go through all of the, the, the book of Genesis where Laban is mentioned and track how is he labeled. Pronouns, uh, what the uh, genetic uh, background is he given, those kind of things. And then lastly, look at and thinking and reflect on goats. Wow. Isn't the book of Genesis rich? It is amazing that we can look at it just through the one one set of glasses called literary reading. We can look at it. Last time I was here, we looked at a number of things from archaeology. We can look at things from the Hebrew language. I don't want to overwhelm you with that. But we can look at text, you know, theologically and the themes. 
But this is one angle that we've been looking at in this course, is just looking at Genesis as great literature. Father, thank you for the richness that you have given us your word. And Father, how we are so amazed every which way we look at your word, it just reveals more of your beauty, more of your design, more of how you work in and through us in this world. So Father, I pray and ask that you will enhance our ability to uh, see these things so that we can have greater appreciation for you, but also see the connections that you want us to see as we read through these accounts. So I pray that you will have a special blessing on all of these men and women as they engage your word in some new ways, even this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.